as you get settled in, we're going to be in two, two separate places this morning. So if, um, if you want to open up your Bible to 2 Kings chapter 17, that's where we're going to start. Um, but put some sort of marker in, um, if, you've, if you've got a paper Bible, uh, paper, hard copy. If you're holding a Bible that's not digital, put something in Ezekiel chapter 16, because that's where we're going to go next. Uh, we're going to look at both chapters this morning. While you get situated, I want to start with a, a series of questions. And uh, I'm, I'm making a request that on a Sunday at around noon, uh, you do some kind of a little bit of soul searching. Uh, you're not going to have to like raise your hand or anything, but be honest with yourself as I, I put some of these questions out there in front of you. Um, believer or not, uh, they're good questions to process through. If you're someone who hasn't placed your faith in, in Jesus, these are some good questions to maybe even help you address why is that. Um, you may answer yes uh, to questions on both of these lists, which is totally fine. So here's, here's the first set. Have you ever felt like your capacity to sin is greater than God's capacity to forgive? Have you ever had a particular moment of sin where you thought to yourself, you know what, now I've really done it and God cannot possibly have grace for that? Have you ever felt like uh, in the midst of maybe the consequences of your actions or whatever the case might be, that God has just totally disappeared on you and you've been left to kind of flounder around and struggle all by yourself. He's totally distant in the midst of it. Or have you ever felt like in the consequences of someone else's actions toward you, their sin and their brokenness and its impact on you that you've been left completely alone to just deal with that and struggle along by yourself? Have you ever had the feeling that if God's ability to forgive were a bank account, then you've overdrafted in his grace has simply run out. That's the first set. The second set of questions are these. And they're the opposite. Is your primary view of God's love that more than anything, you are worthy of it and you've done something in and of yourself to have earned it? As we've been reading through the Old Testament, have you found yourself more shocked that God would discipline the Israelite people than you are that he would continue to love the Israelite people? Have you ever found yourself in the middle of sin or in the middle of temptation thinking to yourself, you know what, this is totally fine because God owes me his forgiveness. I placed my faith in Jesus and that means that this doesn't matter. Do you ever find yourself more shocked by God's anger towards sin than you do by his grace towards sinners? Or have you ever thought to yourself, you know what, my sin isn't that bad, but that other person's sin is awful. You may have answered yes to any number of those questions. You may have answered yes to multiple questions on both lists. And regardless of which questions or which list they were on, the root issue is the same. And the root issue is a misunderstanding and a misplacement of the gospel. This morning, right in the middle of the Old Testament is one of the clearest pictures of God's judgment upon his own people for their own sin. And in the middle of that, we are going to see a beautiful picture of the gospel. And so what I want to do this morning in 2 Kings 17 and in Ezekiel 16 is offer the remedy, the cure, to the lies of both of those lists of questions. It's actually the same cure. 
The same cure for the moments that we think we're too good to need the gospel and the cure for the moments that we think we've sinned so greatly that we've out-sinned the gospel. It's going to happen right in the middle of the exodus of both Israel and Judah. And it's one word. That's what this morning is all about. One word. It's going to take us a little while to get there. But in the middle of Ezekiel 16, there's one word. And the word is yet. And that word should blow the doors off of our incorrect thinking that we could ever out the love of God. And it should also crush the pride in our hearts that tempts us to think that we're somehow due His grace. A one-word cure that needs to run through our hearts and minds on a daily basis. And so if you will hang with me while we get to that place, I hope this morning, more than anything else, is a reminder of the depth of the gospel for each and every one of us. So let's pray and then we'll jump in. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to come and to just be together as a family of believers. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to worship you, to be reminded of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for our sin. Thank you for the opportunity to praise you for that, to find peace and to kind of recenter ourselves on the truth of the gospel, Lord. My prayer is that this morning would be just kind of a booster shot, Lord. Refortifying, restabilizing, recentering our hearts on the reality of our need for the gospel every day. Not just our need for the gospel in order to be saved, but our need for the gospel every single day as we walk in relationship with you. Lord, would your spirit be here and move in our hearts and take your word and just press it into us, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've been walking through the Old Testament over the course of the last five and a half or almost six months, one of the things I've never wanted to do is bore anybody with some of the historical details about what it is that we're reading about. But we are trying to see the way that the Bible fits together as one uh, seamless story that tells the the story of God redeeming humanity from their sin, Genesis to Revelation, how it all fits together. And so at various points along the way, we've been using this chart. It shows nine eras within the Old Testament. And every time we've switched from one era to the next, which we're going to do this morning and into this week, we've taken a minute to just situate ourselves in the big story. And so Genesis 1 to 11 is the creation era. It tells the story of creation, the fall, the entrance of sin into the world, flood, and then the Tower of Babel. And then from Genesis 12 through the end of Genesis, chapter 50, is the story of the patriarchs, or the fathers of the Israelite people. Abraham, God makes a covenant with him. Isaac, his son. Jacob. Then it's the story of Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, that God uses to move the Israelite people from where they're living, which is actually in the Promised Land, out to Egypt. And that sets up the next era, which is the Exodus. The Exodus era is not just the book of Exodus. It also includes Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It tells uh, the portion of the Old Testament history that involves God saving the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, leading them across the Red Sea and giving them the law, which we get for the first time in the form of the Ten Commandments. Then you get the entire book of Leviticus, which further spells out the law. And then Deuteronomy, it's restated for us. The Exodus era also talks about the Israelites wandering out in the desert 40 years while generation dies off as judgment for their lack of belief. And at the end of the Exodus era, the Israelite people arrive at the edge of the Promised Land. And that's the next era, the conquest. They go into the Promised Land and they're supposed to clear out all the Canaanite inhabitants of the land. They do a pretty good job of that. 
but they leave a few pockets of people in there, which takes us into the Judges era. In the Judges era, there's this cycle. It happens seven different times. The Israelites fall into sin. That sin primarily is a sin of idolatry, worshiping something as God that's not God. In every instance, they worship the gods of one of these pockets of people that they left in the promised land. And so they're sinning in that way. God turns them over to that group of people as an act of judgment, allows them to be oppressed or afflicted by them in some manner. They cry out in prayer for a savior, and God sends a judge who saves them from that group of people. That happens seven times, and it's this downward spiral. It's getting darker and darker. Until finally, at the end of the book of Judges, the Israelite people cry out for a king. Give us a king to rule over us like the nations around us. And God says, I will give you a king, only let me choose that individual so that I can pick someone who will be uh, dedicated to my word, who will lead you to worship me, who will always remind you of what I've done for you, how I've been faithful to you. And so that's how things go in the kingdom era for 120 years. Saul is the first king, doesn't do a great job. David is next. He's kind of the model king in the Old Testament. Solomon, his son, is third. And for 120 years, things go pretty well. But at the end of Solomon's reign, the Israelite people say, you know what, we want to pick our own king. And that leads to a split. The kingdom splits into two, a divided kingdom. Israel, 10 tribes in the north. Judah, two tribes in the south. 19 kings rule in Israel. They're all fairly terrible. None of them do what God wanted a king to do, which was help the people faithfully, obediently worship him. And so at the end of those 19 kings, there comes a judgment. There are 20 kings that rule in Judah. Eight of them are categorized as good. They return the Israelite people to worship of the Lord. After those 20 kings, the same judgment comes upon Judah. Those two judgments in both places, separated by over 100 years, are what we call the exile. That's the period that we're in this morning. Exile happens in Israel first. It's easy to remember. They had no good kings, so they get judged first. It happens in Judah second. They kind of get like this stay of execution, if you will. You've got some good kings. There's some faithfulness at times, so the Lord prolongs his judgment. He, uh, he defers his judgment for a little while. Exodus 7, or sorry, excuse me. 2 Kings 17 is the story of Israel's exile. We get one verse that tells us exactly what happened. It's exit, or why do I keep saying that? It's 2 Kings 17, verse 6. It says this, if you've got your Bible. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. That's the capital of Israel. And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. One quick sentence that says, hey, here's what happens. He's very, the author of Kings is very matter-of-fact about it. But then he's going to spend 12 verses telling us why it happened. It's as if you got sent to the principal's office, and the principal said, you're expelled. And you said, why? And he said, oh, I'm really glad you asked. And he spent 30 minutes laying out for you all the reasons why you can't come back to school tomorrow. That's about what happens in 2 Kings chapter 17. And so I'm going to read from verse 7 all the way to verse 18. This is the reason Israel experiences exile. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people, people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. 
And there they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did whom the Lord carried away from before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen. They were stubborn, as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. It's for that reason that Israel is sent into exile. And make no mistake about what happens. Assyria is the tool, the instrument, that's used in order to take them into exile. But God is absolutely the orchestrator. Verse 18, Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. Assyria is the tool. God is the craftsman. And over a hundred years later, that happens to the southern kingdom of Judah. 722 B.C., Israel into exile. 586 B.C., Judah into exile. And in that instance, Babylon is the country that gets used. The, the account of Judah's exile is in 2 Kings 25. If you're reading along with us over the course of the week, you'll read that later. In this region of the world around this time, there are three big shifts of power. Assyria is kind of the bully on the block, if you will, for a while. Then Babylon takes over Assyria, and they're the bully for a little while. And then Persia comes in, and they take over Babylon. And the Israelite people, both in Israel and Judah, are just kind of subject to whoever's ruling in the region at the time. But in 586, King Nebuchadnezzar rolls into the city of Jerusalem. He destroys it, and he burns down Solomon's temple. If ever there was a moment in Scripture that ought to lead us to grieve over what we're reading... It's when the temple gets burned down. In fact, there's an account of the siege of Jerusalem that takes place in Judah. It's in the book of Jeremiah, and it is gut-wrenching to read. But the pinnacle of that is not just that God's people are taken out of the promised land. It's that the temple is, is totally destroyed, and it's as if God himself has left. Israel and Judah, both exiled out of the promised land, because of their sin. That's the reason why. The author of Kings does not hide it one bit. It is judgment for their sin. If you're still in 2 Kings 17, look back at verse 14. In my household uh, growing up, we grew up on the show Full House. And uh, we had pretty much, ev- we have to this day, pretty much every episode uh, memorized. My mom and I can communicate exclusively in Full House quotes, back and forth, whole conversations. Uh, A few years ago, I got her the box set of all the DVDs for her birthday, and uh, she wept. (laughs) There's an episode of Full House. Uh, Michelle Tanner, who's Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen, it becomes apparent that she, like, runs the household. 
they're not, they don't ever really punish her. She's able to uh, be as disobedient as she wants. She's the princess. And so she pulls a swimming pool, a kiddie swimming pool, into the kitchen in one episode. She fills it up with water. And she's in the kitchen all by herself. She's got water wings on. She's swimming in the kitchen. And Danny Tanner comes in through the door from the living room. And he takes one step into the kitchen, and his foot goes into the baby pool. And he's looking down at his daughter, who's swimming there. And Jesse and Joey are there. And he's trying to figure out what to do. And everybody's looking at Danny like, you got to punish her. And so he sends her up to his room, and he needs like a pep talk from Jesse and Joey about actually punishing Michelle. And so he walks up there, and he says, Michelle, do you know why you're in trouble? She says, yes, I do. No swimming in the kitchen. And he says, yes, no swimming in the kitchen. And right then, that sappy violin, full house music starts. You know what I'm talking about. And he kneels down right by Michelle, and he says, the bigger issue is that you don't listen. It's not just that you were swimming in the kitchen. There's a bigger problem, and I have not done a great job of parenting and, and disciplining you up to this point. 2 Kings 17.14 says, There's a bigger issue here than just the creation of these idols and the worshiping of these false gods. It's this. They would not listen. They were stubborn as their fathers had been. Here it is who did not believe in the Lord their God. The problem is not just the behavior of worshiping these false idols. There's a deeper issue, and it's a lack of belief. We've said this a few times over the course of reading the Old Testament here uh, this year, and it's that the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. It's not just that our behavior is sinful. It's that at a heart level, we are broken, We're broken. Our sin is a symptom of a larger issue. And the foundation of that is a lack of belief. It's a lack of belief. A lack of belief that God could meet every desire that exists within you. So because we don't fully believe that, we pursue those desires, we pursue fulfilling the longings in our heart via means that are outside of God's will for how humanity is supposed to live and to function a lack of belief that God is good in the gifts that he gives us, a lack of belief that God is giving and doing in our lives exactly what we need in this current season and we don't need to look beyond his goodness in that place no matter what it might look like at any given time, a lack of belief that God is enough and that everything else is bonus. We talked about that last week. A lot of times our sin can come from a place of not actually believing that Jesus is better, that Jesus is better than every victory, that he's better than every struggle, that he's better than every comfort, that he's better than all of our riches. At just the core level, do we actually believe that? Maybe it's a lack of belief that the commands of God are rooted in the love of God, or a lack of belief that the goodness of God is evident in all of his actions. What ultimately leads Israel and Judah into exile is not just their idolatry. It's a lack of belief in the work of God to call and to create and to sustain and to lead and to guide and to protect them. And notice how personal that is for the author of Kings. They would not listen, but they were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. This isn't some distant, abstract 
disconnected, disembodied being that they're supposed to be obedient to. No, this is the Lord, their God, who made a covenant with Abraham and with this people and has personally led them and guided them and cared for them. They didn't believe the Lord, their God. And so those are the cold, hard facts of the exile. A lack of belief leads to this increasingly disgusting state of sin in the eyes of the Lord and he sends them prophets who warn them repeatedly that judgment is coming and the judgment arrives in the form of exile to both groups. Flip to Ezekiel 16 with me. Ezekiel is one of the prophets. He's sent to the people of Judah in the middle of their exile, so he doesn't come before to warn about it. He comes in the middle of their exile and offers them a very clear picture of exactly why it is that they're experiencing what they're experiencing. And I want to give a couple of warnings before I read a few passages out of Ezekiel chapter 16. The language is really strong. I had to give myself a little bit of a pep talk to just use a few of the words that are used in here in church. But don't let the strength of God's language here distract you from the reality of sin. That's what God's trying to lay out. He pictures this extended metaphor, God speaks through Ezekiel, of his people as a bride. His bride. And in their sin, in their idolatry, they have committed adultery. He compares Israel in a very long 63-verse fashion to a prostitute who has given herself in relationship to other gods. Verse 15, but you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never been nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and my silver, which I had given you and made for yourselves images of men and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them and set my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey. You set before them as a pleasing aroma and so it was, declares the Lord. And you took your sons and your daughters whom you had borne to me and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whorings so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. Let me translate that a little bit for you. God's people have forgotten primarily whose they are. You were nothing, God says. I made a covenant with Abraham who had no children, and then look at what you are now. I gave you all the prosperity that you're experiencing, and I gave it to you in the midst of your kings who were wicked. I saved you out of Egypt. I saved you in the midst of your judges. You've forgotten whose you are, and instead of being faithful to me, you've become like a prostitute, and you've just given yourself to any nation and to any God who happens to come by. Verse 30. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square. 
Yet you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment. Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to, pro- to all prostitutes, but you give your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore, and you gave payment, while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different. How sick is your heart. No one even had to offer you anything to do this, says the Lord. You just, you've given payment to them in return. And so after this extended conversation about the nature of his people's sin and how not just gross it is in the eyes of the Lord, how personal it is to the Lord. God makes a final declaration. Verse 58. In the midst of their exile, God says through Ezekiel, you bear the penalty for your lewdness and your abominations, declares the Lord. You bear it. It's yours. Your sin your punishment. Judgment has come and you are responsible. And so you alone can bear the weight of it. Look at verse 59. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. You who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. Stop right there. Understand that your sin today is the exact same in the eyes of the Lord as Israel's sin then. It's just as personal to him. It's just as heartbreaking to him. It might not look like bowing down to some carved statue that you made out of gold or something, but it looks just as offensive to the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. Put yourself there. You who have despised the oath and breaking the covenant, and then here it is, yet... I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. And I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Jump down to 62. I will establish my covenant with you and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame when I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord. Israel is fully deserving of the punishment they're receiving, yet... They've brought down on their own heads the brutal consequences that they're in the middle of right now. And God says, yet. Yet this is not the end. There is hope. Something is coming. He's going to remember his covenant. He's going to act for his people. He is going to atone for all that they have done wrong. Different words. He is going to atone for all that you, I, have done wrong. Maybe you're not as excited about this as I am on a Sunday afternoon. But this is why it's so important that we understand the Old Testament. Understanding the Old Testament well helps us understand the magnitude of what Jesus does when he arrives on the scene in the New Testament. Not understanding the Old Testament means that we jump in at the climax. It's like you've never seen Finding Nemo. You're flipping through the channels one day. Finding Nemo is on TV and you stop to watch right as Nemo jumps into the big fishing net with all the really large fish and he starts swimming around. Swim down, swim down, swim down. And so you're watching while the net 
pulls that bow over and it's going down, it's going down, it's going, it finally breaks and all those fish bust out and everybody's really excited and Nemo's kind of smashed on the floor of the ocean and you're like, oh yeah, it's cool. It's because you missed Nemo swimming off the reef to touch the butt and you missed him getting captured by the dentist and you missed his dad swimming all the way across the ocean and interacting with the sea turtles and arriving outside of are in the bay there in Sydney, Australia, and you miss Nemo in the fish tank in the dentist's office when he goes to grab the fish for his niece or whoever it is, and all the other fish hop in there and they swim down. You missed him get put inside the bag and the girls shake it up with her braces, right? You missed all of that and you jumped into this really key moment and you said, oh yeah, I mean, it seems kind of good. When you just flip to the New Testament and you see Jesus on the cross, you think to yourself, man, that seems great. But if you don't understand the Old Testament, you've missed everything before that. You've missed exactly how God feels about sin. You've missed the exact picture of what we deserve in response to it. Not humanity in general. You've missed the exact picture of what insert your name deserves in response to the reality of sin. When you see Jesus on the cross, you see this passage literally playing out in real life, in the life of a real man, Jesus Christ. It's as if God says to Jesus Christ, his son, I will deal with you as they deserve. I'm going to remember my covenant. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I atone for all that they have done and I bring that atonement on you, Jesus that word, yet, should leave us breathless at the foot of the cross. Not just on Sunday mornings when we come together to worship. It should leave us breathless at the foot of the cross every single day when you wake up. I want to revisit those two lists of questions. Richard Sibbs says it very well when he says, There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. I left a word out there. If you answered yes to any of the questions on the first list, please understand that you cannot write a check with your sin that the coffers of Christ's love can't cover. God does not, he cannot, he will not love on a budget. When it comes to love and mercy and grace and forgiveness, God is a joyful, extravagant spender. You can't possibly overdraw from that bank account. But the flip side is also true. We need to recognize that the mercy and love that flows from Christ to us is like coming out of a fire hydrant when we deserve not even the smallest drop of that water. The fact that God is boundless in his love does not make us so arrogant as to think that we're somehow fully worthy and due of his mercy and grace. No, it makes us humble because we understand who we were before we found his love. The best way to not slip into the lie of believing any of the questions on list one or any of the questions on list two is to forever remember the word, yet. That your sin was absolutely disgusting in the eyes of the Lord. Yet, he will remember his covenant and he will atone for all that you have done wrong. And he's done that in the person of Jesus Christ. The way to not slip into 
believing the lie of list two is to understand that, yes, you are so loved, that Christ, the well of Christ's love is so deep and he's given to you that, or he's given that to you freely. But at the same time, yet, I deserve to bear the weight of my sin. And so what do you do? I don't, I don't have six you know, wonderful application points this morning. That's because there's only one, and that is to live daily in light of the word yet. You never go past it. It ought to hold you in awe and wonder at the cross every moment of your life. It should captivate your heart, not just the day you place your faith in Jesus Christ, but every day after that. Landon Dowden is a commentator on the book of Ezekiel, and when he's writing about Ezekiel 16, he says this, if we're going to love God passionately and others rightly, we must meditate on the cross constantly. We need not go past the gospel, but deeper into it. The lost world needs to see the gospel advancing in us and through us, and here's the key, and to see that it still amazes us. In every situation, in every moment, that word yet ought to just burst in our hearts. It's the word yet that draws us to repentance in our sin. It's the word yet that draws us to humility in the midst of our own growth in Christ-likeness. It's the word yet that reminds us that no sinful person is beyond the reach of God's love and no very moral person is outside the need for God's love. We're going to conclude our time together this morning in worship. And the first song we're going to sing is, Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. One of the verses says, And as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cross, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. And all I know is grace. That is the word. Yet that we didn't deserve it, we actually deserved the exact opposite, but God's love is such that he could not do otherwise than to remember his covenant and to send the Savior that he has been promising all throughout the Old Testament. That word yet is also the thing that reminds us that though we are that loved and that cared for and that forgiven, that we do still deserve the other side and that Jesus Christ bore the fullness of that penalty on our behalf. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Uh, this weekend, I spoke at the older kids' VBS. And uh, right before I was supposed to speak and, and present the gospel and kind of extend an invitation for kids to place their faith in Jesus, there was an illustration, uh, kind of a visual, that uh, the team had set up to do for the kids. And it was to display just how disgusting sin is. And they were going to, I thought they were going to use some slime, but it ended up going a different direction. But they needed a volunteer, and it had been planned that Libby was going to be the volunteer for that. And so, uh, I believe it was April Berry, she says, we need a volunteer for this illustration. And before any of the kids threw their hand up in the air, they started chanting for me to go up there. Tim, 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 Tim. But I'm supposed to speak right after that. And so I'm kind of looking at Libby, who's seated on the other side of the room, like, I don't know what we're going to do here. <laughs> and so Libby, like, self-volunteers to go up there. And she gets up there, and they started with honey. And they put honey in her hair. And then they added oatmeal. And then they added chocolate syrup. And then they added tuna. 
and every every time they would add something, there was a group of fifth grade boys on the right side of the room who would look at me like, Tim, how can you let this happen? How can you let Libby do this for you? That should be our response to Christ on the cross. That in all the vileness of our sin, as he receives the just punishment of God's wrath, that we would look at the cross and say, Jesus, why would you do that for me? And that he would look back with all the love in his heart, he would say, because of the word yet. Romans 8 says it this way. But yet, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died. The most beautiful picture of grace that the world has ever seen. We're going to close our service today singing grace so glorious.